This is Everyday Leaders. I'm your host, Melanie A. Everyday Leaders is an inspirational show to help you develop strategies to overcome everyday obstacles in your life. Today's guest will share the disciplines that he practices every day that allows him to achieve a life of success. Today's Everyday Leader teaches us the value of what it really means to have a servant's heart. Do you remember where you were on September 11, 2001? You see, he was one of the few people in the room where critical decisions were being made on this day. He reminds us that each of us has a part of something bigger in our world. This important life lesson is one that you too can apply every day to live your life with success. Major General Mark Pillar is my guest today. Everyday Leaders 50 and 50, show 44 starts now. Welcome to the program, Major General Mark Pillar. I have today with me on Everyday Leaders 50 and 50. Welcome. What? Thank you, Melanie. It's nice to be here. Yeah, you're you're a Hoosier, and so it's really nice. Now you're a Hoosier. You haven't been all your life, really. You're back, and I love it that we connected through one of my other guests, Craig Wells. He said, you need to reach out to Mark. He's got great stories about what you're trying to do, which is inspire people to live their lives with success. So welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm just so thrilled that you're here. Um, You live down in Columbus, Indiana, and so we're not too far away. I'm in Indianapolis, and, and a few months ago, maybe six months ago, we met at Cracker Barrel <laughs> and started sharing stories and connected. And I said, Mark, you got to come on my program. <laughs> and, uh, and so we finally got you on. We finally got me on, yeah. Finally got me on. So um, I want you to share with people a little bit of your history. I don't want to take the, all the glamour out of it, but you... Um, you know, coming up on Veterans Day. And so it's really important that I want to celebrate people that have given so much back to our country. And you are really the epitome of a leader in, in what you're doing and still influencing kids and, and our communities. So tell me a little bit about uh, when you were in, you know, your formative years, what first came into your mind about, hey, I think I may want to join in the military and, and serve you know, serve our country? Um, I, I think it started uh, in high school. I had an uncle that had gone to the, the Naval Academy and had graduated from there. And uh, I was thinking about going to, um, I was already committed to go to the University of Evansville and we had Air Force ROTC there. And so I sat with my dad, who was a World War II veteran and uh um, after the war, came back and got into the Army National Guard here in Indiana and, and stayed in there till he retired. And my uncle had just recently tired, retired from, from the Navy, so we sat and talked about the military. And uh, I always wanted to be a, a pilot, fly airplanes. I didn't know if I'd be qualified or not, but uh, I thought, you know, maybe I'd give this a shot. And I talked to them and to get their... Uh, their insights on on a military life, and I got some um, some really good advice from both my dad and my uncle Sam of all things. <laughs> he was truly my uncle Sam. <laughs> Everybody needs one of those, right? And you have one. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that's where it started. I, I got into ROTC at the University of Evansville, and. Uh, uh, graduated and got commissioned. I was fortunate enough. My health was good. My eyes were good enough that I was pilot qualified. I uh, uh, graduated and got my commission as a second lieutenant. Uh, went to uh, Enid, Oklahoma for uh, pilot training. Did 53 weeks of that. Uh, I got my first assignment uh, in Vietnam. The Vietnam War was going on at the time, so I went to uh, to Vietnam and flew um, electronic surveillance aircraft there. Uh, when things were winding down in Vietnam, we moved our squadron over to Thailand, but we still went back and flew over Vietnam and, and, and did that, um, until the war was officially 
over and done with. And I came back to Indiana, was uh, up at uh, Grissom Air Force Base, uh, active duty. Um, I was there for about five years, and I, I saw an opportunity for myself and my family to do some, make my my family's life better. Mm-hmm. So I separated from active duty, went right into the Air Force Reserve, but my goal was to get a, a job as an airline pilot. I did that. I flew with uh, with Delta Airlines for 27 years. Go Delta. Uh, up and, yep, <laughs> it's my favorite yep. airlines. Oh, a little plug for that. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like I'm going to get some kind of gratuity uh, for this. Uh, so flew for Delta 27 years. The entire time I was doing that, I was also in the Air Force Reserve and staying qualified on the KC-135, which is uh, a refueling airplane. We refuel other airplanes in the sky. And um, had various positions at, at Grissom and moved on and had uh, uh, other positions around the country uh, until I finally you know, retired after 30 years of total service um, in the, in the uh, active duty in the Air Force Reserve and uh, my last job was uh, in the Pentagon, working um, for the active duty folks in the Air Force acquisition. And so, you know, we say the Pentagon, you've done a lot. That is a lot to even absorb. And, you know, for people that are listening to this program, we've got an array uh, of age groups, right? I've got millennials. I've got, you know, people that are retired and grandparents and great-grandparents. And so we say Vietnam, right, and the influence that we had as um, – you know, the military in Vietnam. And how scary was that for you? When you think back, you know, you uh, were kind of surveilling and, and looking over, but what was that like for you as a pilot? Well, I mean, I mean, if, if you're, you're at war with another country, you're flying over their country. Mm-hmm. Um, we were low and slow and, uh, and unarmed. Um, I, I tell the story is every once in a while you have one of these how the heck did I get myself into this mess <laughs> uh, kind of moments. And you know, you're uh, 22, 23 years old. You think you're bulletproof and you're going to live forever. How? Mm-hmm. And then I can shoot you down. They, they got bigger fish to fry and shoot at some stupid second lieutenant flying an airplane. So you just sort of, uh, you don't think about it. I think. I, I don't remember fretting over it. I mean, I volunteered to go over there. There was stuff going on. I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to uh, fly operational missions for the Air Force and for the defense of my country. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty amazing. Well, thank you for your service, first of all, because it's, oh. um, we don't ever, I don't think we say that enough to people that have, have really spent their life committed, you know, to serving the country and and so it's really important that um, that we all, you know, even things that we do when we see someone in uniform or know of someone in service, it's so important for us to to understand, you know, what that was, even if you didn't really know <laughs> what danger you were in, right? Because you were first thinking of others, of I'm going to serve this. And so tell me a little bit more about, because when you, you say you're in a family that has influenced you, you know, your uncle and your your father, and, and all these people that have done this, have walked this path before. So to you, it may not have been as scary, you know, to have have this opportunity to say, I feel that I'm being pulled in this way, and I want to go into the Air Force. And and so, you know, as mentors, right, you had great mentors to teach you and help you understand. We had, uh, at the University of Evansville, the, the professor of aerospace study, was a uh, lieutenant colonel, and he was the one that taught the military history classes and, and all the stuff for, for the Air Force, for the, uh, us guys in ROTC. And he was a tremendous influence. Uh, I mean, he was just just the right guy at the right place that, was, that gave us uh, a, a good thermometer to to measure ourselves by or a yardstick. And he was just uh, a wonderful guy with great character and, and, you know, taught you that, you know, 
your character, your integrity. Uh, do the best job that you can. Don't worry about your next job. That'll take care of itself. You be the best second lieutenant you can be, and you'll get promoted to first lieutenant. You'll get that job as, as whatever it is you think you want to do. But don't lose sight. Don't, you know, don't take your eye off the goal. Do the job that you have now. The rest of it will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. And I used to pass that on. And as a, a senior uh, Air Force Reserve officer, we would have conferences, and the junior officers, officers would come in, and we'd just sit down and have a bowl session with uh, maybe four or five uh, uh, generals sitting in a panel and talking about leadership and how to get things done and how to do things the right way and, and handle this stuff in your toolkit. You know, you watch somebody do things the right way, you go, man, I'm going to remember that. You watch somebody mess up something that they did, you know, a decision that they made or some kind of leadership responsibility, and it was handled the wrong way, and you go, I'm going to remember that, too, because, mm-hmm. I mean, this just got out of hand. Mm-hmm. So you, you go through your life, and, and you learn from the good parts, and you learn from the bad parts also. And hopefully you don't make the same mistake more than once. <laughs> well, and you might, but it's okay. You know, some, you of, some of us need to learn a little bit. We have, we're a little bit stubborn maybe, right? <laughs> but I love, I love what you said in it matters what you do today that will influence tomorrow. And so a lot of people get into, you know, they start careers or they start into the military and think of the dream I want to get to this level. And so it's more about a title instead of learning what you can do best to help and influence and learn to the, you know, most of your capacity, the position that you're in today. And um, my main mentor that I learned from in leadership, John Maxwell, has um, one of his books is called Today Matters. And it really talks about that principle in what you do today matters for the rest of everything else that you're going to do. If you don't do it right today, tomorrow's not going to matter. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah it, it defines you, you know, whether you do things the right way or the wrong way. Um, my, my mantra for the military uh, was what I always tried to do, and my, my mission was I'll take care of the, if I take care of the people, Mm-hmm. The people will take care of the mission. Mm-hmm. They know what their job is. They know what they're there to do. And if I give them a good place to work where they can um, feel that they're doing a good job and have self-worth and feel like they've accomplished something that day, then I've done my job. Amen. Well, Thank you very much for doing that and leading us uh, into such great positions. I, I don't want to go any further without talking about your experience with 9-11. I know we talked about this a little bit before the recording, but I think it's so important as you as a leader, um, the things that you were connected to, the stories of personal interest uh, as our country went through so many changes and, and you've been involved since Vietnam. But as you came into you know, what, what our country was experiencing uh, before 9-11 and, and as it kind of unfolded. What were you doing? What was your position? And can you lead us a little bit through that history? Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I mean, 9-11 um, was our Pearl Harbor, except that uh, we were seeing it live uh, on TV, everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. And Pearl Harbor, you know, you would go to the uh, movie theater maybe a week later and see some uh, grainy newsreel on, on what happened at Pearl Harbor. So this was a a very different situation that, that escalated. That uh, 9-11 happened to be my very first day on my brand new job at uh, United States Strategic Command at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska. And I was hired to be the reserve advisor for a four-star admiral that was the commander of strategic command. Um, And the reason I was hired to be his advisor is because uh, 60% of the tankers, the KC-135s, 
are in the guard and reserve. Mm-hmm. So I pretty much knew what the capabilities were and and could advise him on on how he should use those assets. So you were kind and of the expert people. for him to lean on. Yeah. Yeah, sort of a a, a subject matter expert and and, and as Admiral Meese, who was one of the smartest guys I ever knew in my life, I think he graduated first in his class at the Naval Academy. He was a um, he was a submariner, and he said, "I don't know squat about KC 135s. I need you to help me with this." And I said, "Terry, I'll be I'll be happy to." So he was he was a wonderful, wonderful man. So this is my first day at Stratcom. And we are going to run an annual week-long exercise where uh, the, where we will uh, test um, our command and control procedures, uh, all the uh, normal things that we would do uh, were we to uh, lead up to a conflict. Uh, basically, they, they, they will, they'll have a scenario for us, and... Uh, um, it will start out as a, a little border skirmish between two insignificant countries, and then gradually it will escalate and escalate and escalate until um, there's a possibility of nuclear weapons being deployed. Mm-hmm. Well, all the nukes are in STRATCOM. The submarines, uh, they're controlled by STRATCOM. The, the nukes are on the submarines, the, the missiles that are in the ground, and the bombs that the uh, the bombers uh, nuclear bombs that the bombers carry. Mm-hmm. So we're going to exercise uh, b- bombers and tankers and and submarines, and we're getting ready to do all this. And we start like about six o'clock in the morning. We get a weather briefing, and and here's the current situation in this hypothetical thing. And and uh, throughout the week, we're going to generate airplanes and call crews in and, and load uh, d- dummy bombs onto uh, bombers so the, you know, the, the people can get, get their training and do the training that they're supposed to get. Well, uh, we're going through some scenarios and we're going through checklists and getting information and going through things. And uh, the, the senior battle staff at Stratcom is about four stories uh, below ground, about 40, 45 feet ground, in a nuclear-hardened uh, bunker. And there's about uh, uh, 27 of us in there, uh, about uh, oh, 17 general officers and uh, uh, political officer and a bunch of staff and that kind of thing. And we're keeping track of all the things that are going on on this huge TV screen that we have that takes up the entire wall. Uh, and it's actually uh, eight uh, different TV screens that are about five feet by five feet each. Mm. So we're keeping track of different things on different screens. And uh, one of the guys uh, upstairs that is actually running the exercise and giving us the input so we can make the decisions, calls down to Admiral Meese and says, hey, sir, he says, there's something going on. I think you should see this. And Admiral Meese says, okay, put it on the screen number one. So whatever was on screen one uh, switched to one of the networks, and we saw the first tower that was uh, on fire. Um, and we see the smoke going out of it, and we look, and it's a, just a perfectly clear day. And you go, "Wow, how you know?" We're getting just a little late of what's going on, but we listen to the news, and an airplane has gone into the tower. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't know if it's a little airplane, a big airplane, or anything at that point. Nobody really knew. Cause I don't think anybody saw it go in live. So we're looking at this and trying to speculate, you know, how could that happen? How did this airplane get so far off course? And while we're watching it, the second airplane went into the second tower. And Admiral Meese turned to us and said, that's no accident. We're under attack. Send out the messages. Cancel the um, the exercise. And we're going to go into real-world operations. Wow. We're going to stop now at that point. You close your eyes. 
and you think, you know, you have prepared all this time up until this point, right? Everything that you've done that you've trained for, now you're ready. Now you got to go live. You can't practice anymore. Right? No, we're not practicing now. Yeah. yeah. Now it's real, real world. This is happening right now. And uh, we need some, some suggestions and we need some decisions. So what happens is that um, we get on a, like a party line with uh, Washington, D.C., from with, uh, the Pentagon. It's called the Deputy De- Director of Operations, and he's sort of uh, talking us through all of this. And besides him, there's uh, oh, the CIA and the FBI and the NSA and every uh, alphabet soup uh, uh, group that you can think of, uh, all the major commands, uh, NORAD, uh, FAA, uh, FEMA, Air Combat Command, um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is actually on an airplane heading to uh, uh, Europe, so he's not there. But what they do is they form uh, their battle staff and their decision-making people in the Pentagon. Um, and, and Rumsfeld was there, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, um, uh, Connie Rice, mm-hmm. um, uh, Vice President uh, Cheney, mm-hmm. and uh, Colin Powell, I believe, were in the basement of the White House. So we're all in communication, and we're all on this party line so you can hear what's going on. And so what starts happening is the the DDO, the Deputy Director for Operations, he will say into the phone, this is the DDO, we are thinking about grounding all the airplanes uh, in the skies over the United States. Uh, we're going to pull everyone in about a minute. At that point in time, we turn around and talk to each other and say, you know, we think it's a good idea to do this, blah, 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 blah. And so they come back and they pull everyone. They go through their little, little laundry lists and what's, what's your opinion? Uh, is, is it one of those yes, but, uh, are there unconsequences um, un- un- of this that we haven't thought of? Mm-hmm. And we do this on decision after decision after decision. And you would hear all this kind of stuff going on. And, you know, we are thinking, okay, we've put out the, the word airplanes are supposed to get down as quickly as possible. What happens? What do we do if we find someone that, that hasn't complied? Mm-hmm. And we came up with a, a plan. You know, you, you show yourself, you show your force, you tell, you know, the, a plane can get close to the cockpit so they can see what's going on, and you give them a signal to have them land. If they, if they don't comply, then the next question is, do you shoot them down? Mm-hmm. The answer to that question was yes. Wow. Which is, yeah, that's, that's pretty, pretty sobering. So all this is going on. We're listening to all these conversations and everything. And um, there's lots, lots of, of other stuff going on. You know, then the, the airplane goes into the Pentagon, uh, and then the fourth airplane uh, goes into uh, uh, Shanksville in, in, uh, in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. There was speculation that that fourth airplane was going to go to the Capitol building. Mm. Um, we the speculation was that either that day or the next day. I don't remember when it came up. Was that they were trying to attack us in our congressional leadership, uh, our economic leadership, and our military leadership? Mm-hmm. Um, so while all this was going on, there are phone calls coming into first responders all over the country, and there are reports, and we're getting these reports that there's. Uh, there's a bomb in front of the uh, Trans-American building in uh, San Francisco. There's a bomb at the Sears Tower in New York in uh, Chicago. There's a bomb here. There's a bomb there. We we have to send somebody out to look at all this Mm -hmm. stuff to make sure that there's not a bomb there. 
um, there was a fleet of rider trucks that were approaching Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado Springs that were going to blow that place up. Mm-hmm. There was a flight of four crop dusters that were flying north from Mexico that were going to uh, put uh, the crop dust... Uh, uh, oh, gosh, I can't think of the name of the... Uh, 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 not, not it wasn't sarin gas, but it was something that was going to do serious damage to hundreds of thousands of people. And they were going to spray that on Phoenix. You have to check all that stuff and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, well, you can't uh, take a risk at that point. You, you know, as dating that, you have to understand. Like looking back, you would have done the same things because you don't know how you can uh, use as much as you can to protect. That's your, your, your duty, right? And so that's a really, really tough position for everyone to be able to, to come into the same room and, you know, for everyday but people. everyone knows. Yeah. Everyone in that room knows that they have taken an oath to serve and defend the United States of America. But, you know, Mark, what's, what's interesting about this is when you look at this and I'm saying military versus um, you know, just just normal um, non-military people, and you look at work environments, right? And we all think, oh, we're we're always stressed. <laughs> but when you're in a situation like that, right, and you may or may not see the same views as other people, but being a leader is coming into a room at a time of crisis, and you know you have to. The goal is you have to work on the same plane. You have to be able to come to some decisions. You have to make the right decisions for the group to move forward, right? And so a lot of that, I'm sure there's not everybody agreed on, you know, everything. But as as in the military, you're in a group of people that have the same mindset. And so your goal is to protect the country, to make the right decisions as quickly as you can with everyone in leadership roles to take charge, right? And, and to come to terms quickly. And, and, it, and it's not just the military. I mean, it was our, our civilian uh, agencies also, mm-hmm. like the, the FAA and the CIA and the FBI, and, and all of them are mm-hmm. on the same sheet of music. And this is what we need to do to protect Americans. Mm-hmm. And that was that was that was one of my takeaways that day. I mean, I'm, I'm a fly on the wall, and and one of the most historic days in American history listening to all this stuff and, and occasionally there were questions that I knew something about and I would get uh, feedback to uh, Admiral me so that he could make a uh, a good decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, for instance, they wanted to shut down there are radio navigators all, all around the country that airplanes at that time routinely used to navigate to get from point A to point B. Now a lot more is done with with the satellites, but they were used. They had satellites uh, then also that they were using for navigation. So the question was, uh, we are thinking of implementing this um, this uh, procedure where we would shut down all the navigation, so it would be more difficult for airplanes to get around to hit targets and stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do that? Well, Admiral Neeson turns around to no one in particular and says. What are they talking about? And so I explained to them that that was something that we routinely did uh, if we were under attack, supposedly from the Russians, that, that, that we would do that. Mm-hmm. So we did that. We shut down NAVAIDS. Two weeks later, uh, during the debrief, I asked the commander of, um, uh, of uh, U.S. Uh, Forces Command, I said, did you think about turning off the satellites. He said, we did. He said, that would have cost billions and billions of dollars because it would have shut down the banking industry throughout the world. Mm. Yep. That's things you don't normally think about. Yep. When, you know, that's one of those unintended consequences mm-hmm. that uh, it's a good thing somebody knew that that could happen. Wow. And, and that's amazing. So we didn't do that. When you look back and think, you know, of those decisions, like if we would have done that, that could have changed 
everything in history, you know, and it's just having the right people in the room, right, to be able to step up and and be able to provide that kind of information and confidently, right, and and what you said from the very beginning, what you do today matters for everything else, and and that is such a great walk away from this podcast, understanding that what you do today and as much as you invest in yourself and learning the task at hand will help you with your task tomorrow. And, um, and that's exactly. so important. One of, our, one of our biggest concerns that day that we talked about internally was uh, protecting our water system. Mm-hmm. How do you, how you put enough people around uh, to mm-hmm. protect all the reservoirs that are all around the country? Mm-hmm. I mean, we we're afraid they'd put anthrax or something like that in the water system and kill millions of Americans. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, when you get the first, you know, suspicion of trying to check right. that, check check that out, and then and then how you're assured that it didn't happen somewhere else. You know, it's kind of in a yeah. uh, for people that aren't trained and would hear about that. You know, the the common um, civilian would be in panic mode, right? And so a lot of what you learn in military is you have to have this classification of information because you want to make sure you're making all those right decisions before before you act on it, right? And going through that whole analyzation process and what happens if. And and so it, it's so critical that at, at any level, um, military or civilian, when you go through these phases and you understand the responsibility of those kinds of positions, you know, as leaders, you have to know that you're influencing everything and everyone else around you when you make a decision. And that's, uh, it's, it's a weight, right? It's a weight on your shoulders and, and it is a responsibility. And it it is, but you know, you can be trained, I think, to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, these, these people realized I know I know something about this. I know something about this. I know some. I don't know everything about everything. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to surround myself with subject matter experts, and we're going to be really inclusive on this because they may know stuff that I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have as much information as I can possibly get before I have to make the decision on what to do, mm-hmm. and that's where I think we really hit the nail on the head um, that day. Mm-hmm. And no one was, you know, going screaming out the door, we got to go get those guys, because at that point, we didn't know who those guys were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was suspicion. Um, there were some intelligence agencies that had a pretty good idea, but not everyone knew everything about what was going on. And, and that, I think, we uh, discovered was one part of the uh, a flaw in our intelligence community. Mm-hmm. Wow. That has since, I think, uh, been fixed. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're doing all these uh, decisions and everything and, um, you know, trying to figure out what to do next and on the party line and everything. And... Admiral Me says, okay, I just got a phone call. Um, I think the president is on his way here. He said, nobody can say anything about it. No outside calls, nothing like that. So, okay, fine, sir. Fifteen minutes later, there's a news person standing out someplace along the, the gate um, at, at Offutt Air Force Base. Uh, with a microphone, you know, this is uh, Dave Johnson reporting live from off at Air Force Base. We've got a report that the president will be landing here. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's Air Force One now. That's so, <laughs> so much, so much for all the secrecy. Yeah, so much for that. Uh, yeah, that went right out the window. Uh, the president uh, landed and uh, uh, came down, didn't come down the normal way. He came down the escape chute that the Admiral's supposed to take up if if he has to go if under a nuclear attack. Mm-hmm. So the president comes down and uh, comes down to to see what's going on. Um, he was having trouble getting communications that day, so he comes down. He's in our 
uh, battle staff room, and he walks in, and he looks to, he's never been there before, and he looks to his left, he sees all the TV screens, and they're, they're huge, and he does a little double take, and then he looks to his right, and he sees 27 of us standing in attention uh, for the President of the United States. So he has to take our seats, and he sits down with Admiral Meese in the front row, and Admiral shows him what's going on in the board, and checklists that we're running, and the, the threats that we're looking at, and all that, that kind of stuff. And, uh, he gets a, a, a phone call from um, uh, the Secretary of, of Defense. And uh, uh, so he takes a phone call right there in the room with us, uh, and that's Secretary Rumsfeld. And uh, uh, we're selling the party line. <laughs> so we're hearing this conversation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and the president said, uh, Mr. Secretary, he says, I need to let you know that we're not the only people that can hear this conversation. He says, I'm, I'm in a room here with about uh, 27 of my new best friends, and uh, they can hear everything that, that, you, that we're saying. Mm-hmm. And uh, Secretary Rumsfeld said, well, thank you very much, Mr. President, for, for letting me know that. And the president says, well, I need, needed to let you know that because I'm never sure what's going to come out of a former Navy fighter pilot's mouth. <laughs> and that was... That was, uh, you know, they're human. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're doing this crisis, but there's there's some humor there. Uh, Rumsfeld was notoriously profane uh, with a short fuse, uh, but the president knew him and, and, you know, was there to help him. Mm-hmm. They had a very brief conversation. Uh, the president said, we need to go and get on uh, some top, uh, top secret lines. So they went into a different portion of the underground uh, bunker and actually got on a a video uh, conference with the folks back in in New York, excuse me, in Washington, Mm D.C. They did not want him to come back yet. He thought it was very important for him to get back to Washington, D.C. to um, show the world that uh, we're still here, we're still in charge, Uh, got a little bit of a bloody nose, but um, we're going to recover from this. And you um, uh, people that, that caused this uh, to happen, uh, you can run, but you'll just die tired. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was it was a uh, I thought a, a, def- a defining moment, and I was I was just there listening to it. So so I give this briefing. I've got a PowerPoint presentation that that I give about this, and. It's a behind-the-scenes look at 9/11 and what was all, you, all the stuff you saw on TV. Um, we were like the duck, you know. We looked pretty calm on 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 top of the water, but we were paddling like hell underneath mm-hmm. and and doing what we could to keep that next airplane from crashing into someplace and killing more Americans wow. and, and do whatever we could to. Well, and it's all about that conditioning. You know, you had prepared yourself for what if, and the the if day came, and so you responded, and and the country, you know, survived eventually. You know, and and we kind of went through that with you, um, but knowing that the leadership of the country was able to kind of assess and, and slowly kind of peel that back and try to figure out what was happening next. Um, it's just so critical that we as a society, you know, really understand that um, this process is, it's, it's very, um, it's very thought out. It's very intentional. It's, um, it, it's very much influential of the people that are in charge and that are going to make the right and best decisions um, because we have had this conditioning and this training. And so um, if, you, if you step back and look at that, you know, how did that moment transform everything else that you did moving forward? Well, it gave me great confidence and, and a great pride in my country and its leadership and that, you know, we are not, a bunch of warmongers or anything. We're we're in the military to defend our country and defend its people. 
And man, that just that just brought it right to the forefront. That's that was our focus that day. It wasn't to go out and and get anyone. It was to protect the American people. Mm-hmm. And we had checklists that we went went through, and people came up with um, innovative uh, ideas on on how to do what we needed to get done. And again, I'll say, you know, you got the subject matter experts. You listen to them. And, and you weigh the, the consequences and you make the decision. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a hard decision. You know, how, how are you going to, the decision to shoot down on Americans uh, was very difficult. Mm-hmm. And the vice president said, that's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, yeah. it's about protecting, you know, it is about, like you said, it's, it's protecting and you just don't know um, who is, uh, you know, potentially out there uh, that you that you need to be aware of. And so, you know, all those decisions have to be made at those critical stages. Yep. There's a lot going on. Yeah. A lot of moving parts. Going on. <laughs> and I, you know, <laughs> not being in the military or having anyone actually um, close to me in the military. So I learn so much. I read, but, but uh, you know, just being around um, people that have experienced these things and it impacts your life in so many ways. So the things that you think about, you know, I'm sure that a lot of people talk about this, you know, once you experience something like that, uh, there may be a trigger, right, that that goes off that makes you or takes you back to that point that kind of transformed you. And it could be a sound or a bell or a whistle or, you know, um, anything like that or a light. And and so... um, some of the military, right, come back um, from experiencing things and have post-traumatic stress disorders uh, because there is so much intensity when you experience something uh, of that nature. And and so it's really important that people understand, like, that's not something normal that you would go through. And, and so you have to kind of detox from that and teach and train others on... Hey, this is why that happened. And if if more people understand the why behind the experience, then I think they can absorb it a little bit better, uh, because it's it's just um, it's not something that a lot of people can understand unless they've been through it. So, yeah, you, you talk about PTSD, and uh, I mean <laughs> the complexity mm-hmm. of the mind is just unbelievable. And it doesn't take a whole lot to 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 affect that chemical imbalance to make it go short circuit someplace else. And sometimes it's caught, you know, but a lot of the people coming back now um, had wounds and were on medications to help with the pain. And some bodies don't do real well with, mm-hmm. with those kind of medic medications. Mm-hmm. And so now they've been affected by that. And um, it's, a, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing to deal with. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody that's, that's lost an arm or a leg or, or got a scratch, you can look at it. You can put a Band-Aid on it. You can get a prosthetic form of it. But to reach in and to heal the mind... That's really, really hard to do. That's really, really hard. So, um, you know, I just really appreciate everything that you've done for our country and continue to do to help people and teach them. And um, I know you're doing a lot with kids and just service and and other veterans. And so it's just uh, our heart goes out to you, Mark. Um, I, I know you've got another story, and I really, and we talked about this before the podcast, but on a, on a more personal level, like people that can use their influence in so many ways. And so thank you for sharing that very personal story about your experience with 9-11. I, I hope people, a lot of people can listen to that and understand how powerful uh, we are as a country and, and um, so, so appreciative of that story. Yeah, how, how, how blessed we are to have... Uh, people that uh, will give up higher-paying jobs to go and uh, serve in the government or in the military. One of the things I learned working in the Pentagon was that not all patriots wear uniforms. Mm -hmm. Some of them wear suits. Some of them wear skirts. Mm 
Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people there doing good work for America. A lot of people doing and good work. I, I, and, I, and I appreciate that greatly. Yep. So it gave me a whole different perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me a little bit about, and I, and I don't want to go without talking about this, your experience in Oklahoma. Um, you're such a leader in your own right. and But, you know, sometimes as you talked about 9-11 and the decisions that had to be made, you know, sometimes it's not easy, but when you make a decision, it can influence many, many people that are around you. And you have another story. And if you will, I would love for you to take us through kind of the circumstances and then how, how things really changed um, because of uh, immediate action that had to be taken. Uh, and I know the story a little bit more, so, but, um, but help us understand kind of a whole different situation, not formally in a 9-11 crisis, but a different kind of crisis. And you were making great decisions quickly to influence many people, and it, it changed the outcomes. Well, I, I was um, serving Air Force Reserve uh, as uh, the vice wing commander of the 507th Air Refueling Wing at Tinker Air Force Base uh, in May of 1999. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had, uh, this is a Sunday, if I remember correctly, we just had changed command. Uh, the old commander left and the new commander hadn't moved here uh, to, to Tinker yet. And so I was there as a reservist uh, acting as the wing commander. And uh, that was the day that we had an F-5 tornado mm-hmm. that went through Midwest City, uh, parts of um, Oklahoma City, and uh, parts of the uh, Air Force Base and tore up some, some barracks and uh, the horse stables and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the entire active duty side of the runway uh, lost electricity, but our side of the runway, the reserve side, still had electricity. So, um, I, uh, yeah, the, the place it knocked, knocked down the tower, it's power on the uh, active duty side of the base. So I got the uh, other reserve commander who was there from the uh, uh, E3 uh, squadron that the reserves had there. And I said, uh, let's call and see what we can do to help the people. Uh, I went down to our command post, and they got in touch with uh, the Red Cross and the FEMA folks and said, uh, can you um, get a shelter uh, built up? And I said, we said, absolutely. Uh, Some of our... Uh, airmen started coming into the base to see what they could do to help. Mm-hmm. Um, we determined that we could put about 400 people in our hangar. And they said, okay, you're going to be a shelter. And I said, uh, all right, we got electricity. Uh, we'll be a shelter. Um, so we started looking around. Where are the cots? Well, the cots are locked up in... Uh, a maintenance closet. I said, uh, do we have bolt cutters? They said, yeah. I said, get the bolt cutters, cut the locks off. Let's get these cots up and set up. So we set up cots and we decided we're going to have a designated area for anyone that wanted to watch what was going on TV. We'd have a designated area for the kids to play. We'd have a designated area for people who just wanted to sleep and be quiet and, and be to themselves. And then we'll have another designated area for people that want to do other things. Um, we got reservists that came in. Uh, nobody said, hey, uh, am I going to get paid for this? Uh, uh, what, what status am I in? Or, or anything. They just came in and, and started pitching in. Hey, Mark, what can I do to help? Uh, and everybody just came in. And we raided. We didn't have food yet, so we raided all the snack bars. Uh, we found places uh, uh, with, well, we, we called uh, the uh, 
quarters uh, where they billeted people on base and said, can we get blankets and pillows? I said, yeah. So we sent people over there to from our area to get the blankets and pillows. And uh, we got set up in the hangar. And since it was May, it was hot in, in, in Oklahoma. So we went out and found all the big fans that we could and, and had them move an air through there. Uh, I remember we had to move an air airplane out of the hangar so we could make room for the people. Mm. And uh, so then we set up uh, an in-processing line, which is something that we do all the time. Uh, when we're uh, mobilizing or demobilizing, you go through this line, you show them your ID, you give them your, your, your information and all that kind of stuff. We, we went and got computers at offices and printers and, and set up cables uh, there in the hangar. And just about the time we got them set up, the bus just started coming. Mm-hmm. And and these people were, I mean, all they had was what was on their back. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them didn't have their the medications that they needed. That They had, you know, just the clothes on their back. Some of them didn't have shoes on. So we set up this processing line, and uh, we got names and phone numbers, and <laughs> even they had sense of humor. It says, uh, and what's your address? He said, well, it used to be <laughs> this, but I don't, I don't have a house there anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we'll just go with that. So my people just jumped in and set all this stuff up, and about every 30 minutes, we would fax uh, another list of names to the other shelters because there were other people looking for relatives and everything, and we would uh, be coordinating with FEMA and the Red Cross so that people knew where other people were and they would stop uh, wasting all the effort to try and find them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did that, and, and uh, we finally got some meals in there and, and got them fed. We had showers, which is why we could be a shelter. Uh, got some people some showers. And, I don't know, probably around 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, I'm in the hangar, and I'm wheeling uh, one fan from one place to the other to try to move some air. And, honest to God, Melanie, I, I, I just went, God put me in this place at this time to take care of these people. Mm-hmm. All my training, that all this mobilization and all that kind of stuff. I just had that moment that I was supposed to be there helping to direct my people, my volunteers that came in from, from my wing to try and, and, and help these people. Mm-hmm. And you got to understand the whole place was torn apart. It was a mess. Um, what normally would take a five-minute car ride was taking an hour and a half because there was so much debris all over the place and emergency vehicles, and they didn't want you getting out and everything. Um, I had nurses that tried to come in to, to help. It took them, they, they lived 10 minutes away. It took them 45 minutes to get there. Um, it was it was just, just neat. What we... What we had never trained for <laughs> was how to take care of people's pets, mm-hmm. because you know, they're showing up with their dogs and cats. And what are you go- What are you going to say? No, you can't bring the cat here. <laughs> <laughs> so we <laughs> we we put them in part of the hangar, and you know, okay, they got to stay on the leash. And if you can take them out and walk them, that's good. And and. Okay, but... uh, You know, sometimes that's the only thing that people, you know, if they said, bring a family member or bring your pet, some would only bring their pet. (laughs) Because pets are so important to us. And so, as you say that, you know, you you think about those times in your life, if you had your favorite pet that that you've had, and you would lose that through through one of these, you know, environmental tragedies. And... That alone, right? That's a loss of uh, what we say, family member. But um, taking that into consideration is so important, just for the the human spirit, right? That that is something that's so critical that you didn't think about, but you had to plan for, and you you adjusted, right? And so you, 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 made and that you have you have to mm-hmm. you have to. I mean, th- these people just lost everything, but you know, little 
Saito. Right. Uh, I, I, we can't take that away from him. Right. Um, yeah, but it was, it was so heartening. Mm. I mean, I have a, a stack of letters, uh, thanking me, but more specifically thanking, uh, Sergeant Smith or, or Airman Jones mm-hmm. that just sat with me and talked to me mm-hmm. and the compassion that your people showed. Oh. And, and, uh, we, we got, got in vehicles and tried to get to, um, supplies where people could get their medications that they needed. Uh, we ended up with people there, uh, some of them as long as, as three nights. And, uh, it was just a, a remarkable, uh, job that, um, our unit did to, to help those people in Oklahoma City and in the Midwest City that had just lost everything. That's, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a five tornado. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. And none of my, none of my people, not once did I hear, that's not my job. Uh, why do I have to do that? Uh, are we getting paid for this? It was always, how can I help? Mm-hmm. Where do you need me next? That's it's amazing. It was, it you know, it's your team, right? It's your team and it's it, your belief. It's, it's my team. Mm-hmm. And we didn't train for, for that, but we were organized and we know how to do what needs to be do, done. And we jumped in and did it. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was awesome. It's I amazing. think I ended up getting, uh, I think it was a humanitarian award for everyone that helped. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Mark. Amazing, amazing stories. You have an amazing heart. And oh, thank you. leading so many things through our country. You know, you can you can go to Cracker Barrel. You can go to Walmart. You can look <laughs> at people and think, yeah, I wonder what their story is. And, you know, you, you are very humble. And, and you would walk right next to someone, open doors, do things, do the, always the right thing for others as a humanitarian. And we just need to always look around us and remember to thank people for what they've done for others. And you're one of those. And, and, and that's, that's what I tell people, and, and especially kids, you know, and, and, you know, Veterans Day and Memorial Day shouldn't be the only days that we thank veterans. Mm-hmm. You know, if you see some, some guy that's wearing a Korean War, you know, veterans hat, go up and thank him for his service. Mm-hmm. It's it's just going to take a second, and he's really going to feel good about it. Yeah. And especially the Vietnam guys. I mean, they they didn't do so well when they when they came back. And you see somebody wearing a an Army Strong T-shirt, or, or uh, I was in the Air Force kind of T-shirt. Go and thank them for their service. Mm-hmm. And the one thing, I, the other thing, I tell veterans, they go, "Oh, I didn't really do anything. I just I was a I was a pay clerk." I said, "No, no." You get something that was very important because if the soldiers don't get paid, they're not happy. Right. And if they're not happy, they don't, they don't do their jobs right. So you do your job so that he can go do his. That's right. That's and we'll all be true. better for it. Wow, that's an important lesson because so many people say, right, what I do, I am just this. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I am just I, this. I, I, yeah. No, 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 no. It's it's a it's a much bigger uh, picture that you are a part of. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that, and and that's a that's a great lesson. <laughs> if if people could just change the the term, right? I am a part of this. I'm adding value to. I see this as bigger picture. Um, it makes a big difference in your own attitude on how you fit into you know, the, the team, the picture, the goal. And, uh, and that's so important. Um, it's about this feeling of yourself and adding value to yourself so that you can then add value to the mission. Uh, and that's, that's what you've been able to create with the people that you've been around and, and had, had the ability to influence uh, and surround yourself with. I learned that from one of my wing commanders. He would go around to the various offices. He's, he goes, 
So what do you do? And he goes, well, I, I just work here in supply. No, no. What you do is you launch those airplanes out there. That's what we all do. Because if you don't do your job, if you don't get the, the flight suits in time for the pilots to wear, they can't get in the airplanes. We can't launch the mission. We launch the airplane. We can't do the mission. Mm-hmm. All of you are part of the mission. I'm just a cook. The other thing I hear is, well, I was in during the Korean War, but I never saw any combat. And I think, good for you. <laughs> good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but you played your part. You were a mechanic. You fixed the Jeeps. You fixed the two-and-a-half-ton trucks that could carry the guys to do the mission. We all have to do our part. They're just different parts of the mission. That's right. Wow. And whether that's civilian or military, mm-hmm. we're all part of the mission. We're all part of a mission. Mark. And sometimes and sometimes it's God's mission. It's sometimes it's God's mission. Tell tell me about what you're doing today. You you're influencing so many. You've got meetings. You're busier now than you probably ever were. <laughs> <laughs> we were doing stuff full time, but uh, but I want to know. I want to help people understand how they can connect to you because you speak. You said you have powerpoints, but if people wanted to have you inside of their world, come to their company, come to their university, come to their event, and speak about your experiences. How can we find you? Um. I got an email address. <laughs> uh, if, if you're willing to share it, yeah. I mean, is that pretty normal? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, it's uh, m pillar two three at hotmail dot com. M p i l l a r two three at hotmail dot com. Yep, and I live here in Columbus, and uh, you know, uh, if somebody has a need, I'd be willing to see what I can do and come and help them out. Absolutely. You you will be contacted. People will connect to your story because it's, um, you know, it's one of those when you close your eyes, everybody thinks, where was I on this day? Where was I on 9-11? And now we know where you were. Mm-hmm. We know where you were. And taking people through that journey of what does that feel like when you don't know what you'll do, but you have to react on the things that you've been trained, just your your second nature, right? And and so, so many great lessons about that, that uh, people that are training their teams, people that are, you know, walking into, you know, behavioral situations for groups uh, that need to be able to say, hey, we, we're not there yet, but we can get there. With a little bit of training, a little bit of confidence, you know, you can just have that natural reaction uh, so that when you have to uh, step up to the plate that you're going to be able to, to do that naturally. So, yeah, and a little bit, you know, to, again, I don't know everything about everything, but I'm smart enough to bring the smarter people in and make <laughs> me look good. <laughs> well, that, that is a, that's very critical. And so I hope, uh, I know this is going to go out to a lot of people. It's going to help inspire them to reach down and say, what can I do? How can I be a part of, how can I understand that what I do today can add value, um, you know, really to those in my life and in my community. And so uh, thank you very much for coming on Everyday Leaders and sharing your stories and being so passionate about serving our country and, and serving those in the world. I, I just thank you for your service and, uh, and thank you for being you, Mark. Well, thank you for inviting me on your show, Melanie. I appreciate it. Yeah. We will connect soon. Um, everybody, Mark Peller, M. Pillar23 at Hotmail.com. And we're going to get you uh, to a lot of places <laughs> and help a lot of people. So, so I'm okay with that. Yeah. So happy, happy Veterans Day. And uh, we, will, we will push this out so it will be um, pushed out for Veterans Day so people can really connect to that and, and hear your story. So thanks again for being a guest. And I really appreciate it. And we will talk soon. Thank you, Melanie. Look forward to it. Thanks. Everyday Leaders 50 and 50 Leadership Summit is coming to Indianapolis, Saturday, March 2nd, 2019. Join me along with the 50 and 50 guest from Everyday Leaders 50 and 50 podcast. 
this exclusive event will take place at the beautiful New Fields Indianapolis Museum of Art on Saturday, March 2nd, 2019. You won't want to miss this one-of-a-kind leadership workshop where you will personally engage with these 50 leaders and learn how to apply their strategies to live your life with success. Don't miss this opportunity. You can be a part of this exclusive inaugural leadership summit here in Indianapolis, March 2nd, 2019. Remember, there's limited space available, so reserve your spot now. If you know of anyone that would be interested in sponsoring this exclusive event, please have them contact me directly at make at makeconnectionsforlife.com. Thank you for following the podcast of Everyday Leaders 50 and 50.